If you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them and open them to 2 Corinthians chapter number 12. Pastor Troy's traveling home, I believe, as we speak, so be praying for them. She'll be back here next week with us. Um, we're going to be starting chapter 12 of 2 Corinthians this morning. If you were here last week, I closed the service I, at, at the end. I, I took some time and I shared my personal experiences in missions and ministry and with that, I described a bunch of the trouble that I've encountered along the way. And, uh, I mean, I'm not going to lie. When I was going over that list of stuff that happened to me, it made me realize I'm pretty stinking awesome. No, no, it's ridiculous. Everybody clapping is carnal. It's stupid. It's absolutely the most ridiculous thing in the world, and I said that obviously for emphasis to set you up, so thank you. <laughs> we all know that we are all nothing, but by the grace of God, we all know that. Um, if God has ever done anything good in or through me or in or through you, it's just by His grace. We in and of ourselves can do absolutely nothing. And I, I use that as an illustration to set up what we're going to get into in chapter number 12 because at the end of last week's message, at the end of chapter 11, um, Paul kind of concludes the, his whole long list of his ministry resume with all the troubles and difficulties he'd gone through. Uh, the only thing really worth glorying over are his infirmities. That's what chapter 11 verse 30 says, if I must needs glory, I'll glory of the things which concern my infirmities. And in chapter 12, that fact is reinforced over and over again. In fact, we'll see it in verse number 5 this morning, that it's not profitable for me to glory in myself, but God is worth all the glory. Amen? So chapter 12, like every chapter in this book, the theme of the book is ministry. The, the theme of chapter 12 is humility. It's humility. And that's why Paul spoke as a fool when he took the time to defend himself, and we covered that thoroughly enough in chapters 10 and 11. It continues on, actually, in the last couple of chapters of this book. But, you know, Paul was simply answering the folly of the Corinthians with an answer of folly. That's an application of Proverbs 26.5, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own conceits. And so Paul was answering their folly with folly, but really, at the end of chapter 11, he kind of bears it down. He says, look, I'm not going to lie. There's really nothing good about me. I'm just going to glory in my infirmities. And then he starts off chapter 12, right in verse 1. It's not expedient for me, doubtless, to glory. He starts getting real, and he starts getting serious about this issue of humility. It's not expedient. There's no profit in the fact if I would glory in myself. And if I even thought about it, I should be full of doubt. And you could see this theme running through in verse number 5 and verse number 6 and 7 and 9 and 10 and 11. And all the way through this chapter, over and over and over again, Paul is going to be emphasizing the very importance of being humble if God's ever going to use you in ministry. And that's what we're going to see getting into this chapter and, and through the several messages that we'll have to complete this chapter. Obviously, I think obviously... Humility in ministry is critically important. You can't be a fruitful minister of Jesus Christ 
while you're drawing attention to yourself. That's ludicrous. So I gave the title to today's message, Humility, the Pathway to Glory. And we'll see how that fits in just a second. But I want to give you some introductory references. The next statement in your notes is, in God's economy, the way up is down. It's one of those paradoxes of ministry that are described in the scriptures over and over again. If you want to go up with the Lord, you're going to have to go down. Humility is the way to glory. And that's what we see over and over again. Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 42, Jesus called them to him and saith unto them, Ye know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them. So that basically carnal heathen people, everybody wants to be the boss. Exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you. But whosoever will be great, you want to be great in the kingdom? Whoever will be great among you shall be your minister. And whosoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. You want to be great, you serve. You want to be the greatest, be the greatest servant. That's what he's saying. For even the Son of Man, if ever there was somebody that could stand up and say, come on, bring it on, I deserve it. Even the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. Paul refers to the life of Jesus Christ in the same context in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 9. You know this story where Paul says, Let this mind be in you, church, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, because he humbled himself, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name, which is above every name. You see, in God's economy, the way up is down. Solomon, the wisest man that ever lived, wrote in the Proverbs, Proverbs eighteen twelve: Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty or prideful. And before honor is humility, the way up is down. Proverbs 22, 4, by humility and the fear of the Lord, you get some really cool stuff, riches and honor and life. Peter wraps it up maybe in the most concise way of all, 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6, Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder, yea, all of you be subject one to another, an expression of humility, submission, right? And be clothed with humility, for God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Why? That he may exalt you in due time. Are you seeking some status? Are you seeking some admonition? Are you seeking the approval or the recognition of others? Well, the way to do that is just keep your mouth shut and keep, get busy serving. Be humble. And God will lift you up if and when the time warrants that he does. You see, humility is the pathway to glory. Paul understood that. Why? Because, well, as we're going to see in these few verses, first five verses this morning, he experienced what's coming. He experienced future glory. And as a result, it kept him humble, as it should. So if you'll follow along, I'm just going to read the first five verses of chapter 12, and then we'll jump into our outline. 
2 Corinthians 12, 1. It's not expedient for me, doubtless to glory. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago. Whether in the body, I cannot tell. Or whether out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth. Such an one caught up to the third heaven. And I knew such a man, whether in the body or out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth. How that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words, which it's not lawful for a man to utter. Of such an one will I glory. Yet of myself, I'll not glory, but in mine infirmities. Let's go to the Lord, let's pray, and let's ask him to be our teacher this morning. Heavenly Father, as we come before you, as always, um, when we just take a second and recognize to whom it is we are speaking right now, we are humbled. We are greatly humbled because you are glorious and you are everything, and we deserve the exact opposite of what you give us. You're only good to us. But your grace extends not only beyond our sin to bring us into your family, but to continue to strengthen us and allow us to participate in your glorious mission. But it's not because of us, it's because of you. And I I pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning as we look at this short passage of Scripture in the life of the Apostle Paul when he had this experience and the lessons that he learned from it. And I pray that each and every one of us here could make application in our lives. Everybody's got different things going on, and Lord, only your Holy Spirit can take the exact thing and apply it to the exact area that needs to be applied. And I pray that you'll do that this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing we're going to look at, I'm calling our promised spiritual hope. Hope is the blank. And we're going to jump around in the verses because the way Paul wrote this with these statements in parentheses, it it warrants the way that they're connected, I think, logically, for us to look a little bit in the first verse and a little bit in the fourth verse, and and we'll kind of see how it plays out. But this event that Paul is describing, I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago. This is actually Paul speaking of himself in the third person, and he doesn't know if he's in the body or out of the body, and he goes up to the third heaven and all this sort of thing. The event that he's referring to is an event that occurred back in Acts chapter 14, verses 19 and 20. Now, we've looked at this in the past, but this is the end of his first missionary journey, and Paul's on his way back to Antioch. And uh, in Acts 14, we have this event starting in verse 19, and there came thither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people, notice, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. Howbeit as the disciples stood round about him, he rose up and came into the city, and the next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe. And there's a lot of people that would say, well, they thought he was dead, but apparently he just passed out and he eventually woke up and he got back up and he went with them. Okay, you can think that if you want. I don't think that's true. I think the clear understanding is that Paul actually died. Why? Well, first the reason is, is that these people use stoning as a method of capital punishment. And they absolutely knew how to carry out capital punishment. And by the way, stoning, like last week I would have referenced when I was in Africa and we showed the Jesus film, people threw stones at us. Well, the truth is the stones were really little and the people throwing them, their biceps were really little. It it wasn't a big deal. I mean, I can make it sound cool, but the truth is we weren't really in danger. In Paul's case, they're throwing bowling balls at him. They're crushing him, okay? Uh, Paul died. Don't kid yourself. Paul died. And when he died, he saw some things. That's the rest of the text of this passage. We're going to get into that in just a second. But you need to understand that when this happened, Paul actually died, 
had visions and revelations of the Lord, and then God sent him back to the earth, and he continued his ministry. So while Paul was dead, for how long? We don't really know. God takes him up to heaven, showed him some things. Well, what were they? What did he see? Don't you want to know that? Well, we don't know. He couldn't say. He didn't say. He said he couldn't say, right? In verse 4 it says how that he was caught up into paradise and heard unspeakable words. Were they unspeakable because they were, uh, you know, an unknown tongue? No, of course not. They were unspeakable as they are defined in the same sentence that I didn't finish reading. That's how we understand the scriptures. Unspeakable words, comma, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. So Paul heard and saw and experienced some things. And you know that since he had to come back, he was just dying to tell people about it, right? But the Lord said, wait, wait, wait. You can't talk about that one. That's just for you, Paul. You can't, you can't tell other people about that one just yet. And, and you know, you're like, man, dang. I mean, why did why'd they put the teaser in here? What, you know, well, God wouldn't allow him to speak of the things that he saw up there. But you got to realize that's not really anything new. God does that from time to time with future things, prophetic things, right? In the book of Daniel, and Daniel's all about prophecy of future things, in Daniel chapter 12, near the end of the book, in verse number 4, it says, But thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. Go down to verse number 9, and he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. Now, Daniel, he revealed a lot of stuff to us, but there was some stuff he wasn't allowed to tell us. Only Daniel got to see it. The same thing happened with the Apostle John when he got the revelation. We talk about prophecy. We talk about Daniel and Revelation. And even though God told John at the beginning of the book of Revelation, chapter number 1 and verse 19, write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter, still yet there came a time in all the things John saw where God told John in Revelation 10 and verse 4, when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, seal up those things with the, with the seven thunders uttered and write them not. That's just for you, John. That God, I, he had a special relationship with John and he told John some secrets. He had a special relationship with Daniel. He told Daniel some secrets. He had a special relationship with Paul. He showed Paul some secrets. You know what? He's got a special relationship with you and he's going to show them to you too. Just not yet. Just not yet. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. But as it is written, I hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. And so there's this whole idea that we talk about future things. We talk about our eternal state. And you, friends, are intelligent people. You have the ability to, to think about and imagine a lot. But you cannot even imagine what God's prepared for you. You cannot even imagine it. But it doesn't just stop in verse number 9 in Second Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians 2, excuse me. It goes on verse 10. You've got to get verse 10. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. 
For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. And Paul is basically referencing a passage from Isaiah 64. Well, why not? Why do we not get all the things that we possibly could get? Well, because some things were supposed to be kept secret. And we saw that from the Old Testament as well. Paul referenced it here in 1 Corinthians 2. But Deuteronomy 29, 29 is another one of those banner verses. Basically says the same thing. It says, the secret things belong unto the Lord our God. But those things which are revealed belong unto us and our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. And a lot of times you get people who are lazy Bible students. And, and you know, if something's hard to be understood, they just cast it off and they quote Deuteronomy 29, 29, and they just say, well, the secret things belong to the Lord. Okay, that's true. But he said the things revealed belong unto you. Can I, and can I tell you, there's a lot of stuff revealed. I mean, let me just put it this way. There's plenty to keep you busy. How about that? I mean, there might be, some, not just might, there are things yet to be revealed that God hasn't given us in his perfect word. Or maybe it's in there somewhere and he'll just never enlighten our minds to fully get it until we get there. Quite frankly, I'm not 100% sure about that. Nevertheless, I promise you, give your life to understanding what he did reveal, it'll keep you busy. There's plenty to do. Quit casting it off like, oh, God didn't say nothing about that. Maybe you just hadn't found it yet. I mean, it's possible, right? I mean, I know that's true about me. Listen, the revealed things are God's revelation. God's revelation is God's word. And God revealed plenty, right? So this is about our promised hope. And according to the definition of the scriptures, and this is in your notes, hope is the certainty of future events based on God's revelation. So hope is not the way we use it colloquially. Hope does not mean, well, I hope it's going to happen. I don't really know. Hope, according to the Bible, means something is absolutely going to happen. It's just in the future. And I have hope. Jesus is called our blessed hope. It's not our blessed hope so. It's absolutely certain. But his return is just future, right? And the full realization of our salvation. And ultimately, yeah, there's some things that he didn't tell Paul to tell you. But he told you plenty. And God just wants you to have faith in what he did say in his word. You know what? This is a very simple statement to a church like this, but I'm going to say it. The Bible's enough. It's enough. It's all the message you need. I want you to notice that Paul says in verse number one, I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. And I would say to you, so will you. So will you. But not in some sort of a weird, charismatic, late at night after eating too much pizza sort of way. When you get to go like Paul, where you're not sure if you're in the body or out of the body and caught up to the third heaven, well you're going to have some new visions and revelations from the Lord also. But not now. Now, you know what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to just believe his word. That's what we're supposed to do. That's why he says things like Hebrews eleven six that without faith, it's impossible to please him. We have to have faith in his word. You guys know that in 2 Peter 1, 18 and 19, the Bible says that we have a more sure 
word of prophecy. More sure than what? More sure than the very audible voice of God that Peter actually heard when he's with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. Peter actually experienced a bona fide miracle and heard the voice of God from heaven say, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And Peter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes down, he says, listen, we have a more sure word of prophecy. And the prophecy of the scriptures defined within the context of that passage, right, is of no private interpretation. So he makes it very, very clear. Even the audible voice of God can't compare to the veracity of the scriptures because that's subjective and the scriptures are objective. So let me just say to you, it doesn't matter if somebody died and went to heaven and came back to tell you all about it. Luke chapter 16 tells us the story of the rich man and Lazarus. You know the story. And Lazarus was the poor beggar, and they both go to the center of the earth, and the rich man's suffering in the hell side, and Lazarus is on the safe side with the faithful called Abraham's bosom. And when the rich man sees there's a safe side and he realizes he's being tormented, he says, hey, man, send somebody to go tell my brothers. And this is the, this is the passage where we pick it up in Luke 16, 27. Then he, the rich man, said... I pray thee, Father, speaking to Abraham, that thou would send him, meaning Lazarus, to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abraham said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they'll repent. And he said, if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. You see, whatever happened to Paul, whatever he saw, whatever testimony he could have told us, God said, don't tell him, don't tell him. But you know what? It doesn't matter because he already told us enough. All we have to do is believe what he already told us, and that's enough to guarantee our entrance. That's all you really need. And I want you just to think about this for a second. If God wouldn't allow the Apostle Paul, the chief steward of the church age dispensation, the greatest Christian that ever lived, the model of New Testament ministry, if God wouldn't allow him to tell us about life on the other side, what makes you think that all these fake reports of people that say they spent 90 minutes in heaven are true? Just to sell you books. There's one book that's titled, The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven. It's written by the boy's father whose name is, you can't make this stuff up, Kevin Malarkey. With all due respect to the Malarkey family, I'm sure they're wonderful people. God's got a way of doing it, don't he? The son, the boy who supposedly went to heaven and came back, his name is Alex. Alex came out and publicly renounced it all as a lie. He said, my dad was just capitalizing on people's ignorance. Back on April 12th of this year, I was in the hospital and they called the code blue. Typically that happens when 
You're on your way out. And uh, it was horrible. It was horrible for my wife to be in the room and watch. A team of nurses rushed into my room and, well, they saved my life. They, they pulled me back. But I was out for some amount of time. I don't know how long. Hold that thought for a second. There's another book that's real popular that a lot of people were dumb enough to buy and read called Heaven is for Real, written by a guy named Todd Burpo. And, and I want to read to you a little excerpt from the back cover of that book. It's the story of a four-year-old boy named Colton that supposedly went to heaven, right, and came back. Four-year-old Colton astonished his parents with descriptions and obscure details about heaven. Whoa. With disarming innocence and the plain-spoken boldness of a child, Colton tells of meeting long-departed family members. He describes Jesus, the angels, how really, really big God is and how much God loves us. Retold by his father, heaven is for real, offers a glimpse of the world that awaits us where nobody is old and nobody wears glasses. Ah, that's cute, isn't it? You want to know what I saw when I was out? Nothing. I saw nothing. No light at the end of the tunnel. I didn't see my mom waiting for me. I didn't see any pearly gates. I wasn't out flying, hovering over my body, over the hospital bed, watching the nurses work on my body. Nothing. Knowing that I'd be preaching this message coming up, I feel like I got gypped. Listen, it, and quote my friend Brett Bartlett, just doesn't matter. My faith stands on the truth of God's word, with or without some crazy experience, and so should yours. Erla told me sometime after the event that just before I coded, that my eyes rolled back in my head. I was holding her hand. I released her hand. My heart rate started rushing, racing, and the nurses came running in. Just as that, those last moments were happening, that I started babbling some gibberish out of my mouth like I was speaking in tongues. It's crazy. I mean, true story. It's crazy. In fact, it's so crazy, the nurse that was in there when that happened, like, was freaked out about the whole deal. Like, what in the world? And, you know... That's a true story, but I, I, don't know, I don't know what happened. I, I know this, though. I know that when I woke up after it was all done, I'm still not a charismatic. I know that. You see, regardless of what may have happened to me, I judge everything in life according to the pages of this book. And that's the way you should, too. Because you know what? You don't need some four-year-old to tell you that heaven is real. Heaven is real because the Bible says so. And that's all you'll ever need. Look, save yourself 12 bucks. We can glory in our promised future spiritual hope, right? Why? Because the promises of God come to us via his revelation in the Bible, and that should keep you humble, realizing that without God's grace giving you what he's given you, you would be clueless, and so would I. Let's go to the next one, number two, our promised spiritual home. 
As he recounts this story, he talks about, I knew this man in Christ. He says, such an one was caught up to the third heaven. And then further down in verse 4, he recounts it again. And he says, how that he was caught up into paradise. Okay, references a third heaven. The Muslims say there are seven heavens. Of course, the Muslims are wrong. The Bible, in the Bible, there are three heavens. And those three heavens are described for you in Psalm 148. There's a lot of cross-references that you could get. But the third heaven, well, that's where God dwells. And you'll find that in the first couple of verses of Psalm 148, where he talks about the angels and the hosts, the presence of God. The second heaven, well, that's where the planets are. And then you get into Psalm 148, verses 3 through 6, where he talks about the sun and the moon and the stars. We would call that outer space. And then there's the first heaven, and that's where the birds fly. That's the earth and the atmosphere. So that's Psalm 148, the rest of the chapter, where he talks about the earth and the mountains and the wind and the trees and man and, and all that sort of thing. They're just laid out for you. By the way, the whole psalm starts out with the heavens, plural, and then he lays out for you the three heavens that are. I do want to just take a second and, and give a shout-out to those of you who um, may not be taking advantage of the 9 a.m. Bible study that we have back in the Next Gen Center. We're going through seven baptisms. Last Sunday morning, Andy Ireland was teaching on this very subject, like, save me some time. It was awesome. I mean, the stuff, the people who are in that class know that what I'm telling you now, they're like, oh, yeah, we already got that last week. But the class, the information that's being put out in those classes are really very good, and, and he went over this already, so, you know, that was awesome. But let me just do it for the rest of you. Clearly, the third heaven, in the context of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, and the wording of the verses I just read, is synonymous with paradise. Can you see that? He was caught up to the third heaven. He was caught up to paradise. The third heaven is synonymous with paradise, which is very interesting because if you'll recall, at the time of the crucifixion, Jesus turns and says to the repentant thief on the other cross, right? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Luke 23, 43, and Jesus said unto him, Verily I say unto thee, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. So the very day of the crucifixion, Jesus guarantees by the authority of the word of God, because every time Jesus speaks, it's the word of God, that that very day, that repentant thief was going to be with Jesus Christ in some place called paradise, which then begs the question, where did Jesus go after his death? Well, let's ask Jesus himself. Back in Matthew 12 and verse number 40, he gives this prophecy where he says, For as Jonas, Jonah in other words, was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So clearly, Jesus Christ, that day of his crucifixion, did not go up to the third heaven. Clearly. He had to be in the heart, the center of the earth for three days and three nights. That means, by just comparing Scripture with Scripture, that paradise had to have been located at the time of the crucifixion in the heart of the earth. You with me? Paradise had to have been located in the heart of the earth. Now, we already referenced Luke 16 and the rich man and Lazarus and the way that that story shakes out. The heart of the earth had two compartments. One compartment was hell. It had flames. It had torments for the unbelieving. 
The other compartment was called Abraham's bosom, and it was the place for the faithful, for the saints. As we'll see, it's also then referred to as paradise because he turns to the repentant thief and he says, you're going to be with me in the heart of the earth in a place called paradise. So it had to be, again, synonymous with Abraham's bosom. Upon his death and burial for the duration of the three days as he was in the earth, right, not above it, Jesus obviously went to paradise because he said he was. And he was there with the faithful. And what did he do? He declares victory over death and hell. This we see in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 to 20. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death, there gives you the context, in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit, by which also, by which what? By his death, which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometime were disobedient, when once the long-suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a-preparing, wherein few, that is, eight souls, we're saved by water. That's a whole nother Bible study, and Andy did a great job last Sunday laying it out. So you can get that at another time. I'm not going to talk all about who are the spirits in prison and where did they come from and who are they and what did they do. It's not that hard to figure out. But what Jesus did was he goes to the heart of the earth and he declares victory over those that are in the hell side, and he says, I have triumphed over death and hell. I am declaring victory over the rebellious. And then he can turn to those who are on the faithful side and declare victory to the faithful, right? In Abraham's bosom. Revelation 1, 18. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of death and hell. And Jesus has the keys of death and hell, and when he died, he goes down to the center of the earth, and he had some work to do, and he took care of that work, and he opens it up, and he leads captivity captive, and they go out. And that's next. That's Ephesians 4, verses 8 through 10. When he ascended from the grave on the third day, he brought the saints from paradise out. Ephesians 4, 8. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive. And gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And from that time until now, from the time of the ascension out of the grave, the resurrection until now, paradise and all its inhabitants are in the third heaven. That's where they are. That's how you can read every verse of Scripture, understand exactly what God did, where he did it, and not one verse contradicts one verse at all. Revelation 2.7 lays that out for you. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life. Where is that? Which is in the midst of the paradise of God. It's in heaven. That's our eternal home. And you know what? You can glory in that all you want. You can get excited and praise the Lord and jump and shout about that all you want. And in so doing, remain humble because you know you don't deserve it. Because you know that you didn't do anything of yourself to get your ticket punched to be able to go there. So we can glory in those things, but we ourselves need to remain humble. The last thing we're going to look at this morning, point number three, our promised spiritual habitation. Habitation. 
A little bit of Bible study this morning. So in verse 2, I knew a man in Christ above 14 years ago, whether in the body I cannot tell or out of the body I cannot tell. God knoweth. So what Paul is doing here is he's demonstrating his humility by referring to his own personal experience in the third person. I knew a man in Christ. And he tells his own personal experience, but he doesn't want to tell it, hey, I was, I was in heaven and I was hanging out with God and God was... Because that would draw attention to himself. And he didn't want to draw attention to himself, so he takes the low road, he takes the road of humility. And he wants to just deflect and give all the glory to God. So, I knew a man in Christ. And then we get into this whole issue that's in the parentheses. In the body, out of the body, I cannot tell. God knoweth. Well, I want you to understand that in the scriptures, our bodies are referred to with different terminology. Sometimes they're referred to as our tabernacle. Sometimes they're referred to as our holy temple. Sometimes they're referred to as our habitation. Why I took the word habitation, it's from the Bible, and it starts with H. So there you go. <laughs> Ephesians 2, 19 to 22. Now, therefore, you are no more strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and of the household of God. You are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth unto an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, first two verses. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle, he's talking about his body, were dissolved, we have a building of God. So when your life passes and your, 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 your bones are laid to rest in the earth, right? Okay, that's your earthly house of this tabernacle. It's going to be dissolved. Well, what's going to happen? Well, when that happens, we have a building of God, a new habitation, a new tabernacle. A house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house, which is from heaven. So your body is compared to a house. It houses the real you. The real you is your soul, right? So apparently, Paul's experience in the third heaven was a little bit confusing. He actually had a hard time really wrapping his head around it. Was he in his body or not? He, I think he actually didn't know. Now, this phrase that he says a couple of times, I cannot tell, could mean God won't let me tell. Because we already saw that, right? We saw that he heard unspeakable words that's unlawful for man to utter. And so some people have thought, well, I mean... Paul knew what was going on. This is just something else he wasn't allowed to talk about. Um, I don't think so. I don't think so in this case. I think that's what, he, that's what he meant when he said it about the unspeakable words. But here, I think it simply means he didn't know. That's why he follows it up with, God knows. I, I don't really know, but God knows, Right? And the other reason why I think that's the accurate understanding is because there's only one other time in all the Bible where God uses that exact expression, that exact phrase, I cannot tell. And that's in 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 55. And this is what, you know, David and Goliath and that whole deal. And notice what it says. 
And when Saul saw David go forth against the Philistine, he said unto Abner, the captain of the host, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As thy soul liveth, O king, I cannot tell. Now clearly Abner is telling the king, I don't know. He's not telling the king, Well, I know, but I'm not really allowed to tell you. That's not what he's saying to the king of Israel, right? So I think in this case, Paul truly is a bit confused. Was I in my body? Was I out of my body? It was kind of spiritual, but it was kind of me, but I'm kind of not sure. I don't really know. God knows. Paul may not have fully understood. But the Bible does give us some insight. So here's my question for the rest of our Bible study today. What do we know about the body that awaits us in heaven? And listen, this is super interesting. If this doesn't interest you, I I don't know what to say. I mean, go find a boring church. I don't don't know. I mean, this is is good stuff. It's going to be awesome. And and the more we look at it, when we look at it, like, I mean, all... All the older people like me that just got aches and pains all the time, you know, we're like, hallelujah. Hey, man, holy cow, I can't wait. So what do we know about this body? The Bible, okay, so maybe there's some things that God doesn't tell us. There's still plenty that he does. And so it's my privilege to be able to help you understand some of those things. The first is, number one, it's spiritual. It's spiritual. No huge revelation there. I think you probably could have got that. Second Corinthians chapter 5, going down from that passage we started earlier, verses 6 through 8. Therefore, we are always confident knowing that whilst we are at home in the body, meaning our physical body, we're absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. Now, in God's word, that's what we're supposed to do. Verse 8, we are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body, absent from this physical body, and to be present with the Lord. Like Paul was in the third heaven. He was present with the Lord. So that means that he was absent from his physical body. But that doesn't mean that he didn't have a body. That's why he was a little confused. See? Your physical body simply houses your soul for your physical interaction with a physical world. And it's temporal. Like this whole world is. Fleeting. Your body is temporal, but you're going to live forever. And in order to live forever, you're going to need a new body that's going to last forever. By the way, even lost people are going to get a new body that's going to last forever and not be consumed in the flames of hell and the lake of fire where any other physical body would. They're going to have to suffer eternal torments in a body that won't, like the burning bush with Moses, is burned and not consumed. They'll get a new body too, but that's not our subject today. You're going to get a new body that'll last forever. So after death, you receive a spiritual body. It's also called a celestial body. We'll see that in a second. That will house your soul for your spiritual interaction with an eternal spiritual world. Now, the greatest chapter in all the Bible on, this, on the subject of the resurrection is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we're going to jump in in verse 35. Notice this. But some man will say, it's a good question, how are the dead raised up? And with what body do they come? Well, isn't that handy? They asked the question we were wondering. So let's see what they say. Thou fool, that which thou sowest is not quickened, 
except it die. And that which thou sowest, thou sowest not that body that shall be, but bear grain, it may chance of wheat or some other, of some other grain. But God giveth it a body as it hath pleased him, and to every seed his own body. All flesh is not the same flesh. There's one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of beasts, another of fishes, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies, and we're not talking about the planets. And bodies terrestrial, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. And he goes on a couple verses down, and we'll pick it up in verse 44, where it says, It is sown a natural body. So your physical body is sown like a seed. Your body dies, and it is planted back into the ground. And then what comes from it is a new spiritual body. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body. Oh, and there is a spiritual body. Well, what's it like? Point number two. It's like Jesus's. It's like Jesus's spiritual glorified body. Literally, word for word. Philippians 3, 20 and 21. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Our spiritual glorified bodies will be exactly like Jesus Christ's spiritual glorified body, the one that he had after the resurrection. And the Bible tells us some things about that body. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We'll visit there a couple more times, starting in verse 45. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, was made a living soul. The last Adam, obviously Jesus Christ, was made a quickening spirit. Howbeit, that was not first which is spiritual, but that which is natural. And afterward, that which is spiritual. The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven, in case there was any doubt. As is the earthy, such are they also that are earthy. As was Adam in a physical body, so are we now in a physical body. As is the heavenly, referring to Jesus Christ, such are they also that are heavenly. Now saved in him once to finally be glorified, we will have a glorified heavenly, spiritual, celestial body as Jesus is. As is the heavenly, such are they also that are heavenly, as we have borne the image of the earthly, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. And so from the scriptures, there's some things that we know about Jesus' glorified body. Point number three, travels faster than light. There's no question about it. There's no doubt about it. In fact, light is just like the turtle in the race. It's got nothing going on on this. I don't know if you know it or not, but after Jesus Christ rose from the grave, he ascended to heaven two separate times. And we know that based on what we're going to look at right here. So what happens is Mary shows up at the tomb that morning on resurrection morning and Jesus is there and she's going to go up. She wants to give him a big hug. Oh, Jesus, glad to see you. So John 20, 17, I was paraphrasing there. He says to Mary, touch me not. He's not being rude. There's a reason. I'm not yet ascended to my father. Then two verses later, verse 19, then the same day, 
at evening began the first day of the week when the doors were shut where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews came Jesus stood in the midst and said unto them peace be unto you that means that between the morning and the evening Jesus would have had to have traveled north due north past Alpha Centauri past into the sea of glass and into the third heaven and then have returned back to earth in just a few short hours light can't do that that fast he travels faster than light. And then 40 days after spending time with the disciples on earth, he ascended again in the sight of all his disciples. Body will travel faster than light. Number four, it travels through solid objects. Well, we just saw that in John 20, 19. They're locked in this room. They got the door shut and boom, there's Jesus. And they're all freaking out. We'll look at the version of it in Luke 24, 36 and 37 as they... Thus spoke Jesus himself, stood in the midst of them, and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. But they were terrified and affrighted, as supposed they had seen a spirit. Well, yeah, he just appeared in a closed, locked room. So you can travel through solid objects. That doesn't mean anything. Why? What's a spiritual body? Uh, number five, it has no blood. This body has no blood. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going back, pick it up where we left off. Verse number 50. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Now I'm going through some of this stuff fast, and there's a wealth of uh, research and reference material you can get to defend this in other places as well. And we're just not doing that this morning, but I want you to understand that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. And then it says corruption cannot inherit incorruption. That means that the flesh and blood are corrupt, and the kingdom of God is incorrupt. That's pretty simple, right? And the main reason is, is because your blood is corrupt. That's the main reason. It doesn't have so much to do with your flesh because you're actually going to get new flesh. The kingdom of God has no corruption. Now, I want you to, in your mind, just take a journey back with me to Adam before sin. When Adam and Eve was in the garden before sin, they had no blood. How do you know that? Well, you go back to when Eve was created right out of Adam's side, Genesis 2.23, and Adam said, when he looks at it, he says, This is now, notice, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Where's the blood? There is no blood. It's just flesh and bones. Now, I want you to notice this before you think I'm nuts. The glorified Jesus, the last Adam. We're going to go back to Luke 24 now. Pick it up in verse 38. And he said unto them, Why are ye troubled? Why do thoughts arise in your hearts? Behold my hand and my feet, that it is I myself handle me. By the way, this is that event later the same day of the resurrection. Mary, don't touch me. I haven't ascended yet. Oh, now touch me all you want. Because I've already ascended. He made that trip. That's why we know it happened so quickly. Behold my hands and my feet, that it's I myself handle me and see. For a spirit hath not flesh and bones, as you see me have. There's only two real men in all the Bible that we consider federal heads over all the races, right? There's, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Adam was the son of God, according to Luke 3. Jesus Christ is the son of God. Sin, then he falls, were born in Adam's corrupt image. But what you need to understand is before that corruption came, before sin entered, he was just flesh and bones. Jesus Christ in his glorified state, he's just flesh and bones. There is no blood. Now, we don't have time to do it. I'm looking at the clock, and I want to wrap this up. But if they had no blood, 
there had to have been some other circulatory system, wouldn't there? It had to have been something else, and boy, do I want to do that, but we ain't. Sorry. Um, there's just not time. I would, I would digress to take you down that road, unless you want me to. Well, just let me say this. Just let me leave it at this. <laughs> this is not even scratching the surface, but just let, me, just let me throw this out for you, and obviously by this inference you'll know what I'm, what I'm driving at. The first miracle in all of the Old Testament was when, through Moses, he turned the water, the seas, the rivers, to blood. The first New Testament miracle is Jesus at the wedding of Cana in Galilee. And in that miracle, Jesus turned the water into wine, which is a type and a picture of blood. And so there's an association between water and blood all through the scriptures, and it's very interesting how all that lays out. Leads me to personally conclude, you believe what you want, do your own research, or don't care. It's up to you. That they would have had to have had a circulatory system, and so they likely was just water. And so, you know, Hollywood comes up with the story of Snow White, you know, and uh, she's not ruby red, right, until sin comes in and the blood turns red and then, you know, the whole complexion looks different. Um, yeah, so anyway, probably was a circulatory... I don't have time. Sorry. Enough. Stop. Number six. Uh, and some of you might be really excited that number six is on the list. Um, you can still eat. Amen. Back to Luke 24, verse 41. And while they yet believed not for joy and wondered, he said unto them, Have you here any meat? Like they're like, I don't even know. Is that right? Is this possible? I don't even know what's going on. And he's like, Hey, you got something to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish and of a honeycomb, and he took it and did eat before them. That's your promised spiritual habitation, y'all. It's kind of wild, right? Of course, Paul was a bit confused. But I think when you understand your position, in Christ. That, that really clarifies everything. He says, I knew a man in Christ. And there's just a lot of things that are true of us as believers in Christ. We are literally in him. He is in us, right? So according to 2 Corinthians 5.17, if you're in Christ, you're a new creature. According to Galatians 3.28, if you're in Christ... There's no more differentiation between Jew or Greek, bond or free, or male or female. In Ephesians 1.3, in Christ you've been blessed with all spiritual blessings. In Ephesians 2.6, in Christ, right, he's raised you up and made you to sit together in heavenly places. That means that in Christ... Y'all, currently, at this very moment, if Christ is your Savior today, you, are, you currently occupy both the physical and the spiritual realm. Where are you located right now? Well, you're located right here in south side of New Philadelphia. Where are you also located? You're located, seated at the right hand with Jesus Christ in heavenly places. That's where You're literally there also. It's just kind of hard to really get your mind around experiencing it as long as you're still in this physical body also. How do you explain all that? Well, sometimes it's hard to explain. You can imagine why Paul was a little confused. So the last point in your notes is the only thing worth glorying in, the only things worth glorying in concern your future. Otherwise, stay humble. Otherwise, stay humble. Because humility, that's the pathway to glory. Stick with the Bible. Stick with whatever it says about eternity. Amen?
Forget all this extra non-biblical nonsense in Christian bookstores. And, and before I just jump off this hobby horse, can I just say for a second, have you ever noticed that all those guys that write all that fiction, and that's just what it is, all of the stories are stories of guys that go to heaven? Like, the Bible says many are going to hell and few are going to heaven. But all the books are going to heaven. Why? Because that sells. But you know what it's subtly communicating to everybody? All y'all going to heaven. See, it's a ploy of the devil to make everybody think that they're all right with the Lord. And they're not all right with the Lord. Where's the guy writing about the guy died for a second on the operating table and came back screaming because he was on fire? You don't hear those books. Well, there was one book. And it's called Beyond Death's Door. It's written by a guy named Maurice Rawlings, who was a cardiologist. And the author, Mr. Rawlings, got saved because he was resuscitating a man. He was actually doing a heart massage. And the guy would beg him not to stop the heart massage because every time he stopped the massage, this fellow would die and go to hell, according to his account. And each time Dr. Rawlings brought him back to life, the guy would wake up screaming about being in hell. And when Dr. Rawlings saw how genuinely frightened this patient was, he got saved. He got saved. Now, again, that's just a book by a dude. Is that true? Is that true? I don't know. But finally, somebody giving you the other side of the story. Look, y'all, humble yourselves before God. Surrender your will to his will and receive his unspeakable gift. You know, that word unspeakable only appears three times in all the Bible. Paul heard unspeakable words. We give thanks to God for his unspeakable gift. And he talks about unspeakable joy. All of which deal with the future. All of them. All of them deal with the future. And you can glory in that. But the only way you can glory in that is if you have first humbled yourself and received him as your Lord and Savior. So I'm going to give you a chance to do that now and then we'll be done. Let, why don't you go ahead and pray with me if you bow your heads and close your eyes. Heavenly Father, I just want to pray that you would take this message and Use it in our hearts and lives. Lord Jesus, it's really not hard to be humble. When we get a glimpse of reality, who you are and what you've done and how foolish we all are. And so I pray for my Christian brothers and sisters that they would see that and if they wrestle with any prideful thoughts or aspirations, that they would just humble all that and lay it at the foot of your cross again. But Lord, there might be some people here today that aren't sure that they have that eternal glory waiting for them. And maybe that's why they're so prideful. I don't know. But Lord, all they need to do is humbly surrender and say, Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I've blown it. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me of my sins. Please come and be the Lord of my life. Just take over. You take the reins. You take over. I surrender everything I know about me to you, Lord. Just come and forgive me my sins and give me that free gift of eternal life. And I I'll just serve you the rest of my days. And the only thing that I need to glory in are my infirmities because you've done it all already. And I pray for these people, Lord, if there's anybody like that, that they would sincerely cry out to you, that they might even mark it down on the connection card, let us know so that we can follow up. Just help them. Just want to help them. But don't let them leave here still unsaved. That would be horrible. 
So God, be glorified in your word. And I pray you've been pleased with what's been said. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.